Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, as you may have heard, Tyson Fury scored a TKO win over Deontay Wilder on Saturday, and the sportsbooks TKO'd a lot of betters' bankrolls, and Wilder offered the excuse afterward that his legs were weakened because he wore a 45-pound costume into the ring. (laughs) You've been covering sports for a long time, John. Where does this rank on the all-time great excuse list? Uh, do, you, do you have a personal favorite that tops the 45-pound metal suit? Uh, that That's a good one. Um, yeah, the carrying the extra weight around, definitely a lot of us can relate to. But um, <laughs> as, far as, as far as an all-time excuse, uh, yeah, I've got a good one. Uh, good timing, too, for your question. Uh, okay. We just celebrated the 40th anniversary, right, of Miracle on Ice, the gold medal win for the U S men's hockey team. Right. And now even you're a little too young to remember that game, but, um, any sportsman have probably seen the movie where Kurt Russell plays the Brooks character or <laughs> yep. Brooks character. Yeah. And kind of accurate, intense, feisty fashion. So, you know, fast forward a dozen years to 1992, I think it was. And Brooks has taken over as head coach of the Jersey devils. And I'm covering a game. I don't remember exactly who they played, but the game's one of these listless midweek early season games that kind of marked the devil's entire metal dance tenure. It was <laughs> grim. Uh, so Brooks is really angry as he comes into the press room after the game. He's, he's going to face five or six of us ink-stained wretch beat guys. Uh, this is before the general public even had internet access, so mm. hence the ink-stained. Right. <laughs> um, so, so somebody has to get blamed for this, right? And I will remember Brooks calling Continental Arena a dead building and then choosing his target. Um, Herb says the organist should take two weeks off and then retire. So, Eric, we're in a bit of a pickle here because unlike Herb, who was new to the building, we knew there is no organist. It was just Can Muzak playing, basically. So, so now it's a game of chicken, right? So, you know, there came a time when with anything Nets related or later Meadowlands Sports Complex related, you know, had me kind of serving as a version of the White House correspondent, Helen Thomas. So even if there's a team owner or governor up there, I'm going to get the first question. That's that's clear. Um, this was not yet that time, Eric. Um, right. Truth be told, I weaseled out and let one of our other beat guys risk the fire and brimstone from this devil of a coach. <laughs> well, luckily, he just got flustered, but he didn't take it as us mocking him or anything. So we survived. OK, that that is a pretty good one. But uh, but I, I think I can top it, although this is purely purely secondhand. Um, but uh, from the from the same uh, year, I believe uh, uh, this is uh, the funniest excuse I've ever come across is from a 1992 tennis match in Zambia. Uh, I am going to butcher these names, but Lighten Defwale, something like that, uh, said after losing to Musumba Boila, he beat me because my jockstrap was too tight, uh, which which <laughs> would good. probably be enough to land him at number one on the lame excuse list. But yeah. then he added, and because when he serves, he farts, and that made me lose my concentration. <laughs> I'm not awful. sure if he was just trying to be funny or was really blaming the loss on these factors, but either way, maximum amount of points for creativity there. <laughs> yeah, I covered a lot of tennis matches over the years, and uh, those are both new to me. <laughs> uh, and by the way, for the record, I was wearing a 45-pound metal suit when I wrote my betting preview article suggesting that every outcome was in play except Fury by knockout. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult to think and type with that thing on. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 80 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 79 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud and on iTunes and the Apple Podcast app. If you haven't subscribed and given us a five-star rating yet, you'd better have a very creative excuse.
And coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by tenured professor of law at City University of New York, Mark Edelman. Uh, he's an expert in gaming and fantasy sports law, among other things. And um, we're going to talk to Mark about various legal topics, uh, the future of the daily fantasy sports in New York, um, lawsuits against Major League Baseball and the Houston Astros, um, and whether the league should go through the courts instead to pursue their sports betting royalties. Um, but first, it's been yet another busy news week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Of all the states poised to begin taking sports bets in 2020, Colorado ranks among the most intriguing and promising. And last Thursday, it took another step toward reality when the Colorado Limited Gaming Control Commission approved nine rules and granted licenses to all seven casinos that were being considered. The nine rules were approved unanimously, although three of them were modified first, the most significant being Rule 8, which pertained to sports betting integrity. In short, the rules require sports books to report unusual betting activity to both the commission and an independent monitor, and there was concern expressed about trusting the independent monitor with the sports books data. So that was modified to express clearly that the data shared cannot be used for commercial purposes. So everything is moving along, and Colorado appears on track for a May 1st sports betting launch. John, do you see any reason Colorado won't hit that target date? And does this appear to be a consumer-friendly state in terms of the approach to sports betting? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, you know, our colleague Jill Dorson of SportsHandle.com, you know, she tells me that May 1st is specifically embedded in the law, so they have to be ready by then, you know, meaning it's maybe like 75% likely since they have to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, no, tragically, it's going to be a month too late for wagering on the XFL title game. So that's a that's a downside for consumers mm. for sure. But um, the variety looks good. You got DraftKings, FanDuel, PointsBet, Betfred, Barstool Sports, I think, Circus Sports, uh, among others, all in there. So that's good. Um, you can do mobile. You go you can bet on any college games um you can't bet on high school games so that's kind of a trifecta um <laughs> no prop bets on college games but you know whatever that's no big deal right. um the biggest bet you can make at a casino out there is only a hundred bucks so it may take some doing to educate sports bettors there that hey the sky's the limit you know right. for that that broncos uh, super bowl futures bet um well that's probably not a great idea but um <laughs> finally you know most of the betting revenue is going to go toward keeping the state's water system pure which is a totally rocky mountain thing to do um you know somebody once waxed poetic about the serenity of a clear blue mountain lake and that reference could be before your time also i think <laughs> is that are we is it john denver or am oh, i uh, guessing pull. wrong good, okay all right good pull. rocky mountain high john denver <laughs> yes, there nice. we go all right. Um, yeah. And to, to backtrack a little bit. No, I was not uh, sports conscious when the miracle on ice happened. But of course, I have seen the movie. So, uh, yes, in terms of just updating on what's before my time and what isn't. Uh, um, so this is probably a good spot to pause and note that our latest state specific sister site to U.S. Bets has launched. Uh, for those yeah. listeners in Colorado, you'll want to bookmark CentennialBets.com. Shout out to the to the team for getting that site up and running. Um, anyway, uh, the Colorado Division of Gaming has received 33 sports betting applications. They only considered seven at this me meeting, but there are clearly a lot more to come. This should be 
a highly competitive marketplace, just like New Jersey, uh, which is exactly what the sports betting public should want. A competitive marketplace is how I got to bet on the 76ers plus 59 and a half points over the weekend, uh, which, uh, given their injuries, uh, might become their standard point spread soon. Uh, But anyway, everything looks promising in Colorado. Hard not to feel uh, pretty good about that state right now. Yeah, it's a good it's a good uh, it's a good sizable state and it's a good sports state. Uh, Denver, obviously, the center of it. And um, yeah, I think it's a, a significant deal for. Uh, the West in particular, which is kind of slow to embrace any kind of gambling. So Colorado uh, can kind of get out front and wake up uh, Wyoming or Idaho or Montana or somebody. Montana's awake. Montana's awake, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For our second news story this week, we dive into the criminal underworld with a story about an illegal sports betting ring in the Chicago area getting busted with 10 people charged in the indictment. What makes it newsworthy is that one of the 10 people charged is Casey Erlocker, the brother of Hall of Fame former Bears linebacker Brian Erlocker. Casey is also the mayor of the village of Metawa, a suburb about 35 miles north of Chicago. So this becomes, to a small degree, a political scandal as well. Uh, there doesn't appear to be anything connecting Brian Erlocker to the alleged crime, which involves an illegal betting business with about 1,000 clients. But the timing is interesting in that legal sports betting should be launching in Illinois within the next few weeks. And Brian Erlacher, who placed the ceremonial first bet at the Blue Chip Casino in Indiana in 2019, would have been a logical candidate to place first bets and be one of the faces of sports betting in Illinois. And this might complicate that a bit. Uh, when asked about the charges, Casey Erlacher told the Chicago Sun-Times, I don't know nothing about it, which is, of course, a double negative, meaning he does know something about it. Uh, John, does a case with this level of visibility help at all in scaring off other illegal operators? And does it hurt Brian Erlacher standing as a pitch man or an ambassador for casinos and sports books? Well, yeah, I think any big bust is definitely scaring off some illegal operators unless they really know somebody intent. But um, yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. Uh, my first inclination is to say, heck, yes, it destroys any hopes of uh, Erlocker being some kind of a sportsbook operator pitchman for sure. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I've spent about nine months of my life in Chicago over the course of 75 trips or so there um, for various reasons of which only some of them are interesting. Um, but I've spent a minute or two in various Chicago bars, taverns, saloons and other houses of fine spirits. Um, and I can tell you, Chicago is one of the most tribal cities in the U.S. Um, the whole region loves them some Urlacher, too. So right. I think if Brian wants to wink as he tells them he doesn't not know nothing about it, uh, <laughs> I think that fan base will be happy to play along. He's OK. Yeah. You know, I, I came around to sort of a, a similar point um, that, if anything, a sports book looking to draw attem- attention to their ribbon cutting might now see inviting Brian Erlacher as a way to get even more attention. Uh, like you said, if he does it with a little bit of a wink, um, you know, th- this story got some degree of, of mainstream press. Uh, the AP covered it. ESPN.com ran it on their chalk page. Uh, but still, I kind of stepped back and it uh, feels like it's a fairly minor story in the grand scheme. I realize that we put it on this rundown and we're covering it on the podcast. So we're guilty of making it more than it is. But uh, you know, because of the Erlacher name, it's sensational and, and it's interesting to discuss, but it kind of feels like the, the impact will be minimal. This is like an interesting gambling industry tabloid-esque story, but probably not a story that we'll be talking about a couple of a weeks down the road, I don't think. Uh, I just think it's so intriguing that, you know, there's an idea that, I mean, 
it's possible that Urlacher's brother is running this big ring. If he's guilty, we don't know. But right. if he is, that his brother wouldn't know anything, would not know nothing about it. I, you know. Well, uh, it was it was Casey, it was Casey who said, "I don't know nothing about it." Yes. Uh, <laughs> the yeah, guy, but... So okay, so so you're saying that even even Brian uh, is would have a hard time claiming to know nothing about it. Well, I mean, but as you say, it, it makes uh, the name a little more intriguing in a way among right. betters, and there's no charges against him and we have to assume he's innocent to prove him guilty so right he's innocent right now, yes i will and i will say this if brian urlacher gets pulled into this in some real way uh if if his name gets uh, involved in the, in the allegations then then we've got a really major story on our hands but as of now his brother being involved it feels like again fun fun to discuss kind of interesting probably not a story with legs if that's as far as it goes yeah, and uh, Brian's not going to get dragged into this. Right, I wouldn't think call. so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we wrap up the news segment with a story that John reported on late last week as the research firm Eilers and Krychik Gaming released a report diving into specifics on just how much money New Yorkers are spending traveling to New Jersey to bet on sports. According to the report, 40% of the handle at the brick-and-mortar FanDuel Sportsbook at the Meadowlands comes from New Yorkers, and in Atlantic City, the number is 10%. In total, New Yorkers bet $179 million at land-based New Jersey sportsbooks in 2019. And then there's online and mobile, where New Yorkers accounted for $657 million in handle last year. The report estimates that New York, by not allowing mobile sports betting, lost $6.3 million in tax revenue last year, and that number will balloon to about $11 million a year by 2022. Not surprisingly, pro sports betting legislators in New York, Joseph Adabo and Gary Pretlow, took the opportunity to use this as proof that New York is blowing it. But I guess my question for you, John, is does this data really support their cause? Is $6.3 million in lost tax revenue significant? Yeah, you know, I told the New York official after I wrote the story that Governor Andrew Cuomo was going to love this story. Uh, he likes to call the lost revenue a rounding error. Hmm. And here it kind of is. I mean, you know, never mind that his residents get consumer protection regulation from New Jersey in return for most of them returning home with their wallets a little bit lighter. Um, now, offer mobile betting through New York City, Long Island, Westchester County, all over the state. We're talking about roughly 100 hundred million or so estimate. Um, that's a little more than a rounding error, I think. But um, but these Hudson River crossers that we're talking about right now, that's never going to change the governor's mind. Yeah, and that's exactly where I was coming down on this as I was sort of analyzing it. I mean, it, it's all relative. Nobody in any state ever believed that sports betting would solve that state's budget problems. But, uh, you know, every little bit helps. Um, and in this case, you're giving many of the citizens of your state something they want. Um, but it, it's just a case where this amount of money that New York is giving to New Jersey, that's nothing compared to the, the bigger pie that you're taking away from here and uh, the amount going offshore. So maybe $6.3 million lost last year to New Jersey doesn't feel significant. But, you know, in terms of what New York could actually make by legalizing online betting, um, you know, in in total, New Jersey made about $36 million in sports wagering tax revenue in 2019. New York is a much more populous state with some potential big spenders. So you threw out the number 100 million. That's what I was going to say, somewhere between at least 50 million and, and probably closer to $100 million a year. And, and that'll just keep growing. So, yeah, I, I don't know whether whether that still counts as a rounding error or not. But I, I suspect the state of New York could use a chunk of change like that. 
Uh, well, I, this is not going to change his mind, as I say. And and your point is really the main one that I don't think it's gotten through to the governor is the the amount of uh, illegal offshore uh, gambling. Uh, he's right. looking at well, not much going on, and six million, we can no big deal. But yeah, he's missing the bigger picture, I think. Right. He doesn't he doesn't care if New Jersey is eating his lunch, uh, and uh, somebody has to convince him, hey, Costa Rica's eating a, a much bigger <laughs> lunch. That's true. <laughs> a dinner. <laughs> It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. On the heels of last week's Penn Law Sports and Entertainment Symposium in Philadelphia, we are pleased to welcome now to the podcast one of the featured speakers at that event, Mark Edelman. Mark is a tenured professor of law at City University of New York, where he specializes in sports law, antitrust law, intellectual property law, and gaming slash fantasy sports law. He is also the founder of Edelman Law, where he provides legal consulting and expert witness services to businesses in the commercial sports, entertainment, and online gaming industries. And he joins us now to open his vault of legal knowledge to us. Mark, welcome to Gamble On. My pleasure to be here. So I'll start with a, a broad question about the state of legal sports betting. Overall, how do you feel about the way the state-by-state state rollout has developed since the Supreme Court ruling on PASPA? Were you hoping to see more uniform laws rather than each state having its own set of rules and those rules varying wildly? Uh, honestly, I'm very comfortable uh, with the difference in rules between states. Okay. If we think about it, the Murphy decision uh, sought to overturn a federal law that mandated no state could have sports gambling to kick the decision back to the states. So what we're seeing happening is exactly what should be happening. States are now empowered to make their own decisions, and different states are looking at the issues differently. Okay, and, and you don't find it um, excessively chaotic or difficult to follow from a legal perspective because of all these differences? That's just kind of the way it goes when you kick it back to the states like this. You know, if we had one federal law, federal form of registration, it could be a great thing or it could be a terrible thing. We don't know what the federal law would look like. And especially with the efforts of some of the very large gaming companies out there, as well as the sports leagues, to very much control who could enter the marketplace, uh, the piecemeal solution has definitely been uh, fortuitous both for customers uh, and also for mid-sized and smaller companies that want to be able to get in, uh, but might end up excluded under a federal system if the federal system looked like what certain other states were doing. Right. Mm. Okay. You know, Mark, I've, I've been seeing these headlines in the past week, uh, various lawsuits against Major League Baseball or the Astros or both. And uh, it looks like gamblers or daily fantasy sports players, you know, they, they say that the Astros cheated and so they lost money and they want their money back. And these are the kind of things, as a layman, I kind of always assume, well, that's ridiculous and there's not a leg to stand on. But sometimes I'm surprised at what the law actually says. So I'm wondering, do they have any legal ground, uh, you know, to even get the case continued at all or, or is it completely frivolous? You know, there are several different lawsuits that have come up out of the Astros cheating scandal. Uh, different with different strength. And you have to look at each one closely. The simple idea of a gambler in either daily fantasy sports or traditional sports gambling losing money and wanting to sue Major League Baseball on its face sounds frivolous. But there is one fact that changes the entire scenario. And that is the fact that Major League Baseball was a shareholder in DraftKings at the time. 
which makes the case very different from a simple scorn better. This isn't just a better who loses who's unhappy with the entity, but this is a better who loses based on alleged corruption in the sport. And the same sport that purportedly knew this corruption was going on was also taking those bets as a shareholder in DraftKings. And it's that last fact that would make a case that otherwise would seem frivolous, perhaps have legs. Okay, and I think with a lot of these cases, it seems like if if there is a leg to stand on and you might get to a discovery phase, uh, a big player like Major League Baseball or the Astros, they don't want to get into that mess. So it's possible these uh, some of these plaintiffs could get a, a settlement and walk away. You know, if we look at the history of Major League Baseball working with DraftKings, uh, it's one that at least one and possibly both of these parties have tried very hard to keep quiet. Uh, it's came up over a period of time that Major League Baseball became a shareholder or some type of relationship with DraftKings uh, as early as spring, if not summer, of 2013, uh, which was fundamentally different from the approach what FanDuel did took, where they became a shareholder and went public with it. And in fact, it wasn't until a year or two after Major League Baseball became a shareholder in DraftKings that this information went public. At least one of these sides wanted to keep it very quiet. Uh, so the Pandora's box that might exist here uh, from a risk management but also reputation management standpoint in Major League Baseball uh, is if the plaintiffs survive a motion to dismiss, a lot more information could come out about the relationship with Major League Baseball, which at the time purported to be opposed to sports gambling and even certain growth of daily fantasy sports. I think they called it akin to a flip of a coin at the exact same time they were becoming an investor in it. Um, I don't think some people from Major League Baseball and Major League Advanced Media uh, want it, want um, documents or information about that process to become public. Well, uh, on a topic somewhat related uh, in that you were just talking about uh, DraftKings and the, and the daily fantasy sports uh, companies, uh, John wrote on Monday uh, about one topic that you and your fellow panelists covered at the symposium, which was the uncertain state of DFS in New York. Um, we have a, a third and final New York State court verdict pending after the industry lost at two lower levels. What do you see as the range of possible outcomes? What are the, the best and worst case scenarios for DFS? Well, if I could be a little bit more long-winded here, sure. uh, the two cases that have come down, the two decisions that have come down from the New York court have been very different from one another. And for a large operator like DraftKings or FanDuel, they might on some levels both be losses. Uh, but the first decision I thought was a win for a mid-size, a smaller DFS operator and then the second one was a loss. Uh, the first decision, in ult ultimately, what the first decision said was that New York State was not allowed to implement its new regulations about daily fantasy sports, uh, but they could still deem DFS to be a game of skill. Now, this is a great decision for smaller companies that might not want to follow all the New York regs. Uh, it also is a great decision for all of those companies that didn't gun jump like FanDuel and DraftKings those who waited for legality and have been still frozen out of the marketplace based on these regs for the past five years, because the New York Gaming Commission, even though they're supposed to register new companies, has failed to do so. The second decision, the appellate decision, uh, is closer to being a loss uh, for the mainstream fantasy sports industry, because the second decision not only came down and said that the new regs were impermissible, but it also overturned the line in the new regs uh, that would have deemed fantasy sports to be a game of skill. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in essence, what that means is not necessarily that daily fantasy sports, which is illegal in New York unless it's overturned, uh, but it kicks the ball back to where we stood in late 2015, early 2016, before the regs were passed, in which uh, there is an arguable question as to whether daily fantasy sports is legal or illegal, uh, questions that entitle whether these games themselves have the sufficient threshold of skill under New York's material element test, uh, and whether they're based on any future contingent events, uh, which makes it very likely that certain forms of daily fantasy sports would be illegal. Uh, for example, DraftKings is one race NASCAR based on a single performance of a few racers would probably fall on the wrong side. Uh, but it's less certain where daily fantasy football and daily fantasy basketball would fall. It becomes almost a crapshoot of how the judges analyze it if we have another case. Hmm. So, so uh, along the lines of the NASCAR example, all the the single game showdowns that they've been doing, uh, that that would also fall on the wrong side under under that circumstance. That's my belief. Um, up until the period until New York passed its regulations. Uh, there were certain companies that I felt were behaving very, very safe and staying out of the marketplace until there was a declaration that it was illegal. Uh, or it was legal. There was FanDuel, uh, which might have been pushing the envelope a tad, but seemed to have some statistical support for the games that they were operating. It was skill-based, at least under a predominant purpose test, which might be a little bit different from material element. Uh, and then there was DraftKings. It was pretty much saying, we have these creative and innovative ideas. We are going to run them and try to stop us. Mm. And amongst these creative and innovative ideas that DraftKings was choosing to operate were these NASCAR contests based upon a single race and these golf contests based on uh, a single round of golf, uh, which did not even seem to comply with the UIGEA carve-out, which they at the same time claimed was what allowed their behavior uh, and there was no evidence that these met any threshold of skill. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see if New York doesn't get overturned uh, if DraftKings continues to run with these contests, as well as whether FanDuel, if FanDuel continues to run with these contests, because years later they've launched something very similar. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, Mark, obviously everybody's been hearing, in the, in the sports betting industry anyway, has been hearing for the last year and a half about the leagues. They want integrity fees or royalties or a data mandate from legislators, that sort of thing. And um, I'm wondering, um, you know, again, it seems like, well, can't the leagues just sue a company that uses their information and, and try to do that? But um, I take it the leagues are wiser uh, with this strategy of, of lobbying legislators and getting a mandate from, from them rather than just going through the court and, and hoping to win there. Well, just to be very clear about what the league is trying to stop, the league is not trying to stop um, people that are taking or stealing somehow stuff that the league has compiled and using it on their own. The league is going a step further than that and trying to prevent companies from coming to the arena itself or watching the games on television, self-tabulating the game data, uh, and then selling it, which is an even greater extreme. Now, there have been two court opinions at this point uh, that seem to pretty clearly reach the conclusion that under U.S. intellectual property law, leagues do not have an underlying right to their own data. Uh, the first one was um, the Motorola Stat Tracks case in the mid-1990s, uh, where the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit said that the National Basketball Association uh, could not stop a fledgling company from sending people to the games or having them watch the games on TV, self-tabulate the data, and then sell that data uh, for people that wanted from beepers. 
the second case that seems to once again support the same point that there is no general protection in data uh, is the 2007 case CBC versus Major League Baseball Advanced Media, uh, in which Major League Baseball attempted, after purchasing certain rights from the Players Association, uh, to stop a fantasy sports company called CBC uh, from producing a game which in included players' names and data from the day before. Uh, and once again, the court, in balancing the right of publicity against the First Amendment, found there was a very strong First Amendment right in using the data for fantasy sports, much as they would be publishing it in the newspaper the next day. And even though there was a right of publicity in the athletes' names, uh, on balance, the court found that the First Amendment trumped. Based upon these two cases, I think it would be very difficult uh, for any sports league to make a claim to the right to ownership over data in court under the current law. Yeah, and I just want to wonder about the. It was talked about Friday. Uh, would in a perfect world would it be that clearly the the results and the stats and and the names are not uh, you know protected or owned by the league, but the likenesses of the players and that sort of thing, you know, that's a little bit of a different story. That you know, it might be good to split the split those in two. I think that's right, and you know, there's even some case law out there. Uh, for example, for those people that follow um, video games. Uh, the case Hart vs. Electronic Arts that found that on balance, uh, the right of a college athlete to prevent the use of their likeness uh, on the cover of a video game and as an avatar in a video game uh, would be a more important right to protect than any first, alleged First Amendment protection there. Uh, so I think that is a very fair way, at least in generality, uh, of looking at this, that the daily fantasy sports and sports gambling games should not be using the players' pictures without permission, uh, but the mere name itself and the statistics that come with the name uh, seem to be very firmly entrenched in the public domain, and I don't see any reason why that should be changed by a state statute. I think the current system works quite well. I have a, uh, a bonus question for you here. Uh, this is something that, uh, that that John sometimes asks our guests, and I'm going to uh, drive in his lane here and steal one of his moves. I'm curious, just uh, uh, Mark, for your interests and activities as a gambler. Do you play DFS? Have you gotten into sports betting? Or are you just an outside observer and expert on the legal front who doesn't get involved? Uh, I limit myself to activities that are permissible in the states where they're allowed uh, that comply with the rules based on the relationships that I have. Uh, so in other words, uh, I love to make predictions on games. I love to make predictions on players, uh, but I do so within the rules that allow for it. Okay, that was uh, not a, not an entirely clear answer. Sounds like you're uh, tiptoeing around things a, a little bit, and uh, I won't I won't press any further. I'll just recommend Mark. You can drive up to the Catskills, and uh, you're good to go there. <laughs> uh, you know, John, it's beautiful because living in New York City, I do. So I'm occasionally over doing Science Seton Hall in Newark. Uh, uh, my 15 minute um, ride from New York City to Newark, uh, as soon as we leave. Uh, Penn Station puts me on the side where sports betting is a no-no to the point where I can ex exercise the apps if I choose to do so. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it has uh, really been a pleasure speaking with you, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us on the podcast this week. My pleasure. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll.
It was a strong week for Team Gamble On. Uh, I won, John won, everybody won. Here's a rundown. Uh, first, I did lose my long shot bet from about a month ago on Deontay Wilder to win by decision at plus 1,200. But because I went with a low-risk, high-reward bet, uh, I wagered small, only cost us 25 bucks. Also, in neutral news, my prop bet on Ben Simmons last Thursday was voided as he was scratched due to back issues in the first game after the All-Star break. Now we get to the positive news. I had the Bucks to cover a 12.5-point spread on Thursday. They dominated and won by 20, so we won $100 there. John took over for me as the world's premier XFL better. He had the Battlehawks minus 9.5, and they, like the Bucks, won by 20. Uh, so that's another $100 profit. And John backed John Rahm in last weekend's golf event. We won $100 on his top 10 finish, but we lost $10 uh, trying to cover our butts uh, just in case he finished in first place. Uh, add it all up. And we won a very solid $265, putting us in the black by $269. We have $1,040 on hold in futures bets, uh, some of which, including that Houston Roughnecks bet, uh, are looking pretty damn good. Uh, And that leaves us with $9,229 available to bet this week. And you're up first, John. Well, speaking of futures bets, I don't think the Trailblazers are going to finish 21 and two, which uh, I need. <laughs> wow! So this, in a way, this would be a great week to do what they call, a, I think, a write down and accounting. But um, I guess instead, <laughs> I just need to pick wisely and then uh, get a little more ahead, and then we'll take that beating when it comes, maybe like next week. So yeah. uh, well, we do. We do. If we're talking NBA, we do have not that the Clippers have been doing so great, but we did grab them at 14 to one before they even uh, acquired Kawhi. So you know they're like three to mm-hmm. one now. So. Mm-hmm. If that one comes in, uh, your your Trailblazers bet is certainly forgiven. <laughs> okay. That's good. All right. Now, I'm a little bit hamstrung on the PGA Tour. Uh, they're moving to Florida this week with some really early uh, tee times, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so a sweet pick like Tommy Fleetwood will probably finish his round by the time this podcast posts at lunchtime. So uh, that's not going to be in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but looking at the late tee time players, I'm going to try and increase my golf winning streak to four. Um, as I try boring U.S. Open champ Gary Woodland, uh, 100 to win 150 with just a top 20 and a feeble field um and sure 10 to win 220 that he takes the whole thing okay uh it's always fun to root for the over right we've uh, discussed that many times uh i think it's not just fun but smart in this week's big xfl showdown uh, arguably the two best teams in the league the houston roughnecks at the dallas renegades close game to call houston favored by one on the road the total is set as high as 50 and a half at some books, but at Play Sugar House, it's a mere 49. Houston is a team with a league best offense and a pretty mediocre defense. They get into shootouts through three games. They've scored 99 points and allowed 68. That's an average final score of 33 to 23, well over the 49 total here. Uh, and the Renegades, uh, they had a bad first week without Landry Jones. They only scored nine points, but with him at quarterback the last two weeks, 25 and 24 points scored. So if these teams end up anywhere in that range, you know, 27, 24, 31, 20, 35, 17, the over is hitting. Uh, so I feel good about this one, betting $110 to win 100 over 49 points scored. Mm, that's uh, plausible. And I know uh, the overs have taken a beating in the XFL so far, but uh, right. I like going, your rationale. Going against that. the trend here. Yeah. Um, so I got in personally last week on the Yankees under 101 and a half wins this season. Um, on my assumption that Luis, Luis Severino's soreness would lead to the Tommy John surgery that he's now headed for. So uh, now Severino's toast for the year. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton now is already questionable to be healthy for opening day and beyond probably. Um, so I'm leaping all over 110 to win 100. 
uh, under 100.5 wins on DraftKings. Um, I think the prevailing theory seems to be, hey, the Yankees went over that mark last year in spite of a million injuries, including Severino, only threw 12 innings last year. Anyway, so and they got Garrett Cole now, so they have to win at least that many, right? Um, I happen to know exclusively that the deals with the devil made last year by DJ LeMayu, Gio Urshela, Cameron Mabin, Mike Tuckman, Mike Ford, and Domingo Herman were of the one-year variety, so <laughs> under it is. <laughs> All right, and, and uh, I never need extra reason to uh, root against the Yankees. So, <laughs> Who does? Uh, so, right, exactly. So, All right, so we've got two under bets going for MLB already this year, Yankees mm-hmm. and Pirates. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, really, we're really trying to <laughs> counterbalance what went wrong for us last year. Yeah. Um, so I... I've lost my last couple of boxing bets, but I've been taking underdogs or long shot props. I'm going to try to get back to my winning ways by betting a favorite. Uh, An interesting super flyweight fight this Saturday. Undefeated Khalid Yafai of England against the once great Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez. This is a close one. But I don't quite think Chocolatito has enough left to win at this level. Some books have Yafai as high as a minus 156 favorite, but at Fox Bet, he's a very affordable minus 120. So let's risk 120 to win 100. Uh, and also, uh, I noticed one of this Friday night's Showtime fights, Kevin Newman versus Gen Plana, is 28 to 1 for a draw at Fox Bet. It's a competitive looking 10 rounder on paper, should be more like 20 to 1 for the draw, so uh, let's throw $10 on that. Uh, Plana happens to be coming off a controversial eight round draw in his last fight, uh, and his fighting style can make judging difficult, so uh, this feels like a good one to throw a few bucks on the draw. Mm-hmm. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Mark Edelman. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling, and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, Eric and everyone out there, I hope you all have plans for Leap Day on Saturday. Um, What's little known about it is that in many countries back in the day, this is true actually, single men traditionally were taking a major gamble simply by stepping foot in the town square because this is the one day in four years where a lady may propose marriage to a gentleman. Um, It's said that Scottish law from the 13th century required that fines be levied if a marriage proposal was refused by the man. Um, So the bad beat there was the price of leather gloves, a single rose, a single pound, and a kiss. Um, so, ladies, if you didn't get that expected proposal like Christmas or, or New Year's or Valentine's Day, well, here comes the perfectly social, uh, socially appropriate time to close the deal. And single fellows, be careful out there. <laughs> and with that, until next time, gamble on. Gamble on.